Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Friday, the 23rd of the 7th. Michael, how have you been since we spoke on Wednesday? Warm, Gary, warm. From what I remember, that was also the answer you gave on Wednesday when I asked how you'd been since Monday. Mm-hmm. Well, warmer then, perhaps. I must admit, I enjoy it. The world around me is whinging because of 29 degrees, Christ's sake, last couple. It's fantastic. They'll all be weeping the next month, next, I should say next week, when the sun disappears and we risk the chance being in this Atlantic island that we are, that it won't come back. So we've got a couple of things to talk about on the show. We've got uh, the death of Des O'Malley. We've got a, a recent piece from RTE on why cars are so expensive, which didn't mention one of the primary contributors to why cars in Ireland are so expensive, that being the Irish government. We've got the <laughs> willingness of uh, media sources to refer to someone as something negative, in this case anti-Semitic, based on stuff they wouldn't really know. And the Germans are delighted because they've managed to get the US to approve of Nord Stream. And the rest of Europe is just slightly confused about why the Germans and Americans are approving of Nord Stream. I suppose to, to start with Michael, Des O'Malley is dead. Des O'Malley, for those who don't know, was, well, he was many things during his life. Politician for a great deal of it. Most impactful, maybe, at least towards the end of his political career, in founding the Progressive Democrats. But actually rather a long career, even before that. He was the scion of a, one of the an aristocratic Fianna Fáil family, what a mutual friends of ours calls uh, one. He was a young F- prince of Fianna Fáil. Um, Don O'Malley, the man who had been Minister for Education and introduced free education at primary level to the country. Was it primary or secondary? Uh, was his uncle, I think, not his father. And he himself was, I think, 30 when he became Minister for Justice in the early 70s, which was a period which covered, of course, the arms trial and the beginning of the Troubles in the North and the the evolution of the IRA, the Parisian and the official IRA split and all that. And whether or not he, he might have had the same outcomes anyway, but certainly his experience as Minister for Justice and supposedly being a target for assassination coloured his view of republicanism within the physical force tradition, as we like to say in this country, that from convoluted trace. But even from he was he was guarded. He was a he was an obviously gifted man, a man of, who had confidence in his gifts as well. Does O'Malley to explain why he might have not been particularly popular with certain republican uh, groups? And there were a couple of things. There were a couple of reasons. But one that I remember is that Des O'Malley was the person behind the special criminal court. Yeah, and it's hard. We're so used to it now. And actually, I suppose a lot of us, when we think about it, don't really like still the idea of the criminal court and whether or not really a democratic state should have such a thing at all. But there was the feeling, and it was probably correct, that that you would cause of subversion and because of threats and fear that the ordinary jury trials are no longer capable of being effectively pursued in in the republic. So they came up with this, uh, the 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 special criminal court. At the same time, when people were absolutely derisory, caustic, and critical of the what they call the Diplock courts in the north, but you know we. Keeping two contradictory opinions at the same time has never been a particular problem for us down south, Kerry. And I'm sure, I mean, I'm not sure, I know for I know that the system has had its critics, but an awful lot of people have been, I'd say, would be, have been mildly surprised at how well it's worked. Yeah, it is. The Special Criminal Court is on the face of a court which has some, um, what the kids might call, problematic aspects, Michael. Aspects that, you know, if not tightly controlled, could uh, produce results that are... Um, not in line with constitutional niceties. Basic aspirations to be a liberal and democratic country. Freedom and transparency and all that. And yet, by and large, that's not really a concern with it. No, it's a compliment to the to Irish judges, the Irish judiciary, and their adherence to the principles of justice and law. Uh, that it has been... Just like, I am concerned at times... We talked about this before, Gary, uh, certainly off air, where, and this is not so much the judiciary, not even maybe even the Special Criminal Court, but the, the willingness to use the special powers, say, under the Offences Against the State Act, when you should be talking really about crimes which are what we would traditionally understand as 
terrorist crimes. And you're listening, somebody was held overnight, but they were held not for the 12 hours, but they're, they're being held for an extended period under the, the offences against the state applicants. And it is disturbing the number of times people who don't appear on the face of it to have anything to do with what you might call terrorist activities get held under the Offences Against the State Act. And then the, the belief that the use, one of the useful, the useful aspects of having something like the Special Criminal Court was to use it not just for terrorist crimes, but say for gangland, gangland crimes in Limerick and in Dublin, where, again, people might be frightened and might be subject to uh, to pressure that people who want to suborn perjury from them and uh, this was a way of insulating them from that the kind of the problems you'd have with the jury trial is go to the special criminal court but as we say generally speaking it seems to have worked out pretty well probably still get it today a lot of people who would end up in front of the special criminal court and then declare that they didn't recognize the legitimacy of the special criminal court <laughs> But that never really mattered because the Special Criminal Court believed in its own legitimacy. Yeah, it didn't really care that they were saying, it's like like a child closing its eyes and saying, you're not there, you're not there, I can't see you, so you're not there. It was, I'm sure it was morally satisfying for the people who were denying the legitimacy because they rejected the validity both of the the court, but not just the court, of the the state, Gary. And I don't want people constantly harping on about this. But there are members of the Dáil today who not that long ago did not consider the Dáil to be a legitimate parliament or to be representative of the wishes of the people of Ireland. But, you know, those were different times. Things move on. And we're all happy that they have moved on. So this was all in in Fianna Fáil. But he had somewhat of a falling out with uh, Charles Hockey. He did. And yet Jack Lynch in 1977 uh, wins this massive massive majority, which is probably at least in part due to the the Tully Mander. Tully Mander, for those who are unaware, there was an attempt, not attempt, there was, uh, there was a, the, the constituency boundaries in, particularly in the Dublin constituencies, were redrawn to create a whole series of three-seat constituencies. The belief being within Fine Gael and Labour that if you did it right, the outcome would be, even if Fianna Fáil got more votes in a constituency, that it would, they would end up losing seats because you get one Labour, you get one Fianna seat, one Fine Gael seat, and one Labour seat. Whereas in the larger, say, in the five-seater constituencies, Fianna Fáil would end up, in four-seater they'd take two seats, in a five-seater they might take two or three. And there was very good numbers on, to this, Gary. It was worked out nicely. The problem was they had never run, never run the model on, uh, the, never run the simulation when they said, well, what happens if... Fianna Fáil gets above this number because it just didn't think that was worthwhile. Anyway, in 1977, Fianna Fáil got that number. And Fianna Fáil and Labour TDs fell like skittles all across Dublin as Fianna Fáil took two out of three. It meant that Jack Lynch had a very, very large majority, which was poisonous because he couldn't control them and he couldn't reward them. <clears throat> there weren't enough jobs to go around. And eventually, he was, in 1979, he was taken out by Hawhey. Desi was, like Hawhey, one of the bright, up-and-coming young men. He may indeed have been one of the men in the mohair suits. I don't know, because I, I know when Lynch resigned... So you're right, Lynch wins this massive majority. Well, it's like a 20-something. Yeah, but you remember, when you know you need 80-odd seats to, to have the majority, and you have a 20-seat majority, it's a massive... In Ireland, the massive majority. So he wins that, then within two years, he's gone... And then there's the leadership. There's the leadership fight between Hahi and George Colley. Now Colley was very much the, the 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 party man, and I would say Jack Lynch's choice. But I, from what I remember, well, I wasn't around for this. From what I've read about it, O'Malley was um, with Colley. Well, if he was, he didn't do a good job on it. I can't remember because one of the things Colley didn't do was Colley didn't pick up the phone. He didn't canvas. He didn't do anything. Hawhey had been busy, busy, busy on the, the rubber chicken circus. Anyway, and there must have been a rapprochement at some stage because there are two men with strong egos and a lot of ability. And Des, when Hawhey gets into government, Des gets into government too. He's not banished to the back benches. So then a couple of years after that, 1979, so 1982, you have another general election. Hawhey leads Fianna Fáil. They don't get a uh, majority and there's a heave. 
they try and take out Hahi. One of the people against Hahi was O'Malley, and they got crushed. Yeah. They, if you ever heard a mention of, of a gang of 22, yes. that's where it came from, because only 22 TDs uh, voted against Charles Hahi. I used to be able to name them all. I sadly not no longer able to do it. Hugh Burton, who was the Wexford TD at the time, was one of the gang of 22, I do remember. And they got, well, now that was, just for gain for clarity, it was a period between 81 and 82, there had been three elections. Um, how he had succeeded in forming a minority government on one occasion. Um, he famously paid Tony Gregory off, but there was a very unstable. Then the Finnegan government fell, the Finnegan government fell in 82. Uh, in 82, Garrett gets into power and he stays in power for the full five years. He goes in on, a, <laughs> he went in on, a, on this voluntary, you know, policy of being sensible and budgetary prudence and all that. I can't remember, did he double or treble the national debt in five years? Um, it was spectacular anyway. It was one of the great bad governments of our time. That wasn't the thing that caused O'Malley to split with Vinifal, but it didn't improve his um, standing. Or his mood. Or his mood. What eventually... Uh, broke him was related to contraception mm-hmm. and he left and he formed the uh progressive democrats that would have been 1985 end of 1985 and he brought he brought a chunk of tds with him and he brought the, the likes of the descent of the, the the leadership of bobby malloy was a big figure mary harney was a big figure he brought one, I, I think, in my memory says he only brought one Philagel TD with them. The most of them were Philagel TDs. But it was a, f- a curious thing. Philagel TDs, but Philagel votes. Yeah. I mean, that's where Michael McDowell came from. Yeah. Michael Mac- McDowell had been Gareth Fitzgerald's man in his constitu- Fitzgerald's constituency. And, and McDowell comes over. And the PDs, they were, I suppose, the, the Ireland's version of a new... Freed market, Milton Friedman, Margaret Thatcher style of politics. We'd never had anything like this before. And it was, it was economically radical, but it was also socially. <laughs> they briefly flirted because they discovered that it wasn't going very far. They briefly flirted with what they called the godless constitution, Gary. We're going to get God out of the constitution. There was a kind of a, there was a, a bit of an anti-clerical edge to the whole thing. I think within the party there would have been people who were far more interested in the economic side of it, being good hardline free marketeers, get the government out of your pocket, lower taxes, lower regulations, and weren't really that much bought into the social change side, that kind, that social liberalism, which for O'Malley and for others was was a big part of it. I don't think, for say, for Bobby Malloy, it was particularly uh, a big issue. And in fact, I think in Bobby's backyard, it would. He wouldn't talk about it at all. But it was part of their attraction to that South Dublin Fine Gael vote was this hard edge. It was secular, it was liberal, it was tolerant, it was modern, but it was also going to slash your taxes and rule you like a king. I, I think the first election they took 14 seats. Yeah, but you know, not bad. Then the election after that, I don't think after that they ever got into double figures. They had a bit of a, res- a slight resurrection. They went down, but then they had a little bit of a resurrection later on. But the thing is, they were in government. And that was the big thing. I mean, that was the, the great miracle. Was There was the 87-89 Fianna Fáil government, which was a minority government, which was Charlie Hawhey in with Ray McSharry as Minister of Finance, Ray McSharry, Mac the Knife. Probably the best government in the history of the state. Just putting it out there. But that falls uh, because Finnegan had engaged in a, and Alan Jukes had, a, had this talus strategy where it was confidence support, and Finnegan would not oppose anything that Fianna Fáil government did, which was for the good of the country. <laughs> Alan Jukes has still not been forgiven in Finnegan for giving succor to a Fianna Fáil government, let alone a Charlie Howey government. Anyway, eighty nine, there's there's an election, and lo and behold, Charlie doesn't get the majority. It was a fundamental flaw. Charlie never got a majority. The polls by 89 had, I think, Fianna Fáil and Charlie up in like 54, 55%. Numbers that today just seem bizarre. 
and Charlie thought this is my chance and he went for a snap election but there was no reason for it and people said well you're doing a good job it's a good government why would you why would you do this and they punished him they lost seats and they politics is a remarkable thing isn't it politicians are remarkable people Gary even out of the terrible bitterness of the civil war which had only taken place two years previously they were able to put it aside and for the sake of power they became best pals well they went into power together in a coalition government pds basically became what labor had been for many years just there in government constantly able to do things and the pds did things because they had ideas that's scary they had ideas they had an actual philosophy and like the labor party you 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 you, you were to do the same thing they got a hell of a lot done because they knew what they wanted to get done. Yeah, I mean, this is a comment you, you... I've heard it less as time has gone by, but maybe because there's been a re-examination or maybe because people have just started to forget the PDs. But the PDs dissolve in 2009 and people sort of said, well, the party wasn't successful. Like, I had a bit of a run, but ultimately it failed. But when you look at the actual impact of parties over time, the PDs did a hell of a lot of stuff that was rather impactful and has in many regards stayed around. Trivia, just a trivia question, Michael. Do you remember the last two TDs that um, the party had? So the 2007 election was disastrous. They went from, I think, eight to two TDs. But do you remember who they were? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mary Harney? Mary Harney is one, yeah. Bobby Malloy? Noel Grealish. Noel Grealish, I knew that. It's no use in a pub quiz saying you knew that after you've given your answer, Gary. You lose the... No, Grealish is correct. But that's Bobby Malloy's seat. In my defence, that was actually Bobby Malloy's seat. The thing about the PDs is, is, to this day, you run into PD people. They are all over the shop. Thing is, Gary, until the crash happened, they had transformed politics. Fianna Fáil, they had dragged Fianna Fáil. Now, I think it's a direction Fianna Fáil was going in anyway. But they had dragged a hell of a lot of Fianna Fáil far... Well, far to the right. Certainly to the centre-right in the way they understood things like the market and taxation and the econ- intervention in the economy. They had done the same to Fine Gael. They had, moder- they, they had moved the Overton window. They had done the sacred task of politics, whether you're on the left or the right. They PDs moved the Overton window. And now the crash moved it back. But until the crash, they had been nor- really, really influential on the shape of Irish politics. Now, they weren't beloved. There was a well-known Fianna Fáil activist who had a, back in the day, who on his answering machine used to do an uncanny impression of Des O'Malley, uh, which was, I have to say, was very funny. And in it, he would intone, I can't do the O'Malley accent, but it would something like, please leave your message after the high moral tone. <laughs> And there was an element of that about the PDs, that they were, it was a high moral tone, you know, that they, they were speaking from a slightly more elevated, more moral, more intellectual, purer position than the bog warriors and shit hoppers that were in the other political parties. You know, they were philosophically pure and driven. And Desi could be a sarcastic bastard. I mean, the the accent and the, the voice didn't help. But he was good. He could be good value. Uh, and a, he was a bright, capable, gifted man. And he had some... Mary Harney was a woman. I, th- I had a hell of a lot of time for his ability. And I often thought that had things been different, she would have been Fianna Fáil's first woman uh, leader. And she would have been the, the, the country's first Taoiseach. Woman Taoiseach, that is. But it was not to be. But that principle, that principle of being positive towards investment friendly towards business, but also that principle of low taxation uh, being itself a driver, potentially at least a driver, for economic growth so that you can lower taxes but increase the tax take, the old Laffer curve in practice, was something which had became very important. Charlie McCreevy didn't join the PDs and Seamus Brennan didn't join the PDs. But stayed in Fianna Fáil and had an enormous effect on within Fianna Fáil. But a lot of people felt that Charlie was kind of the PD that got that didn't get off the reservation somehow, stayed in, stayed inside. But was very sympathetic. Would have been very sympathetic to PD ideas. Yeah, and you ran into some odd people in the uh, in the PDs. Colin O'Gorman, current head of Amnesty International, 
famously involved with the PDs. Well, fam- famously, Gary, I think maybe, yeah, famously amongst nerds and people like you. But yes, he stood for the PDs. Um, Colm's father had been a Fianna Fáil councillor in the South Wexford and had stood, at least on one occasion, maybe a couple of times, he had stood uh, for the doll. Colm ran, uh, you know, top of my head, I think he got a couple of thousand votes. Wexford was never a massively positive result for the PDs. First time they ran a, they ran a, a guy, they called Harry Macaulay, you know the Macaulay's chemists, the very, very successful chemistry, that gentleman, good guy, he ran for them and got a good vote, but after that, but uh, yeah, Colm, and then Colm, did Colm join the Labour Party afterwards? Was there talk of Colm running for the presidency under the Labour Party? I can't remember, but he was a PD, he was Slight, economically, slightly odd PD, Gary, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, I mean, then he ends up in the Senate because um, Kate Walsh, the PD senator, she she died. She did, she did, she died. And then O'Gorman is brought in to replace her, which is how Colin O'Gorman became a senator. There's a reason behind everything, isn't there? It's just, life is just odd like that, Michael. He's the last, I'm trying to say, is he the last of those big beasts from a time when Irish politics was an awful lot more interesting. Ha, oh, he is gone. His carrot gone. His carrot's just turned dead. Did I, did I miss that funeral? I should have sent a mass card. Peter Barry is gone. You, you realise that Gareth Fitzgerald died a decade ago? No, see, I might have been out of the country. This is my excuse for everything. When I, when I, when I can't remember something that happened like a decade or more ago, I was probably out of the country. But still, I should have sent a pass card. The thing I actually miss most from the PDs is the ERSI's increasingly frantic appraisals of their policies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they didn't like some of the stuff. But even the they had to, they had to move as well. As time moved, so men are moved with it. And those times moved. The SRI was moved to the right. Everybody, they moved, as I said, they moved the window. Maybe the moon, it's also possible the, the window was moving that direction anyway. But he was, uh, like Charlie said of himself in his last speech, quoting Othello, he has done the state some service. And I think you could look back and genuinely say that Desi, he did the state some service and he should be remembered for that. He just seems, Gary, and I know it's it's very, it's always a kind of a goggles, pink goggles thing, isn't looking at the back in the past. You just have a feeling that if you put Des O'Malley into the doll today, he'd just dissolve them all in a bath of acid. They wouldn't be able to resist somebody like O'Malley. But maybe, maybe not. Well, I mean, that's, that's partially because O'Malley was good and partially because, well, the current crop or not. Do you know what? I'm getting to like Leo Varadkar more and more. I think Leo is a He's just looking like a politician increasingly. He, this is nothing. Just thinking in the context of people who, who might survive the the the, the Mali acid bath. He, he's just wonderful capacity to accept government policy on anything to do with COVID, and then come out the next day and say, "Well, actually, I was against it myself." You know. Actually, there's something we weren't going to talk about. Just I think we should mention in brief. You remember, we were having a discussion. We have had many times before about the fact that uh, the government needs to talk about where we're going to be and how we're going to come out about that. I have to say, I want to give kudos to Leo. Leo came out and put a number on it. And now, did you hear, did you see that, Gary? He came out and said that if we can get the, the, if we can get the CFR down, if and when the CFR gets down say, to 0.1, then that would be, and I think he may even have used the words, an acceptable rate. I mean, I'd have to check what the CFR is now, but we're not far from that. No, I think we're on 0.15-ish, something like that. Probably somewhere around there, yeah. Now, that five is it's like the last couple of pounds after your Christmas, you know, when you're getting the weight off in January, Gary. Those last couple of pounds can be hard to shift, so that... 0.05 may be hard to shift. But I thought, well done, Leo. He actually put a number to it. Nobody else was doing it. He didn't have to do it. And I think he did a very sensible and responsible thing. He said, listen, there is going to be a, what we are going to have to call an acceptable level of fatalities. 
uh, I think it's and he he pitched a number which is basically the same as the winter flu, uh, which makes sense because that's the number that's been going around as a comparator. So I just want to I I saw that and I thought well done Leo for listening to our podcast and paying attention and agreeing with us or well done Leo for just doing a sensible and good thing. So you won't often hear me saying things like this guy. So yeah, I hope Leo's listening and taking full account of it and basking in it and enjoying it because it won't happen again for a while no so that's that's des o'malley certainly impactful upon irish politics more than most irish politicians and as michael said the end of one of the few remaining big beasts of irish politics there are not many of them left orgie did a piece shortly um orgie did a piece there i think yesterday and they're asking why have second-hand cars become so expensive? And they went through all of the normal reasons. There's issues with the production of new cars due to microchip shortages, which aren't really being reported very heavily, but have been a growing concern, actually, not just in relation to cars, but in relation to other things as well over the last couple of months. Uh-huh. And could be a substantial problem. But one thing that they didn't mention, uh, which I thought was interesting, was one of the reasons why second-hand cars are so expensive is that cars are so expensive to buy originally, and that influences the price of the secondary market. Part of the reason why they are so expensive initially is VRT, or Vehicle Registration uh, Tax. Yes. Now, VRT is a um, bit of an odd one. It's basically the first time a vehicle comes into the state, is registered in the state, you have to pay VRT on it. Now, once a vehicle comes into the state from outside the state, you have 30 days from when it comes in, and then if you don't pay, the VRT rate goes up every day you don't pay. It does, and I I know, well, I'm not, I don't speculate, I know that there are quite a number of people out there who don't know that, and think they have, or may, or may be mistaken, or have been mistaken in the period of time they think they have available to them. And Gary, that that number can end up costing quite a substantial amount of money. My understanding is that it goes up by 0.1% every day that you don't do it. So every 10 days, it goes up 1%. All right. I think it's somebody who took, who thought he had slightly over, who thought he had 90 days and took 90 days. It took, I don't know, for an expensive car. Anyway, be informed is the message here. Be, no, be informed. VRT has, has been rather controversial uh, tax because there's, basically it is excise tax. Yeah, it's it's a bit like excise duty and things as well. You know, it's a tax. There, there are people who say within the community that you can't when you're you're bringing a product fr- across borders. There shouldn't be these extra because it effectively ends up acting like a tariff, and tariff is a very bad word in EU speak. But the, our the Irish government is absolutely insistent, Gary. This is not a tariff. May look like a tariff. May walk like a tariff, talk like a tariff, but it is in fact tax, and they are very, very serious about that. This is a tax. That's why it says T, Gary, VRT. You can go online and you can get VRT calculators, and they'll give you an idea of how they work. Yes, they do. But revenue bases the level of VRT on what they call the open market selling price, and there is somewhat of an open question as to whether or not the open market selling price includes the VAT or not. Because if it did, you would effectively be double taxed, which would be generally considered a no-no, Michael. I, I, I don't see why it would be surprising. It might be a, a no-no, but I can tell you for, for a fact that if you're importing spiritus, liquors, wines or beers into this country, certainly, because I, I, I have imported wine, my, my good self, and when you, 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 you land it, you pay duty on every bottle of wine it's it's a it's a unit tax rather than a volume or tax for anything under 15 percent it's a unit tax the vat is then calculated on the price of the wine from the producer the insurance and the transport costs plus the duty so you pay that on the duty which is a tax on a tax it and it would be now, when I first discovered this, I thought this was an absolute fucking wheeze. It's standard, so I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was the case. I don't know. Um, I had thought it was the case, but you're, I think 
Further investigation suggests that it's not the case. But it wouldn't be surprising to me if you were if you were vatted on your on your tax, because it's not with something we do we do do we do do already. But isn't it isn't it fantastic? Or just the general point of the story was the the RTE story was all about why cars are expensive, and that would be they reported in a way which would be much like somebody saying, "Why does a pint of Guinness cost four fifty or five eighty if you're drinking one of those posh bars in Dublin?" And never mentioning the role that the government has in creating the price of a pint. And this is not unique. It's when they talk about house prices, and I think both of us have observed this more than once, in the last number of years, everything, every time they talk about why houses are so expensive, they go through a whole list of things. But they never refer to the role that the government has had in making the house, construction of a house more expensive and are on top of that, the tax take that the government takes from building houses, whether it's whether it's VAT or stamp duty or whatever, it's it's an odd lacuna in their analysis, Gary, that they don't seem to think that the the effect that the government has on the price of the car that you're driving needs to be considered as part of the global problem. No, and I mean particularly considering the VRT can be up to thirty seven percent. You're not talking about, you know, a 2 or 3% thing being tacked onto a car. That is a massive increase. I know, and in relation to the to the open market selling price, I have heard it said, and I don't know if this is true, that the open market selling price, well, what we know to be true, the open market selling price is the Irish market value of your car, as in if you had bought it in Ireland, how much would you have paid for it? And I've heard it said that the open market selling price, where VAT is calculated from, because it's the invoice price of the car, had you bought it in Ireland, it already includes VAT and VRT. So effectively, if you import a car, they're putting VRT on top of the price of VRT. <laughs> that's brilliant. Now, I don't know if that's true. Oh, I hope that's true. That is fantastic. So you're paying a tax on a tax that's partially based on a tax. <laughs> Oh, Gary, I hope that's true. Oh, let that be true. That is that is fantastic. Um, we don't have a standard here. That's what, like if you're in the United States, I understand this from watching movies and TV. They have the, what they call the blue book value, and you go and you look up the blue book. I think in the UK they have something analogous to the blue book value. Like there is, there is actually a place here. I think the calculators are fairly good, but that's not to say that they're always exactly on the on the penny right. And sometimes they can be significantly wrong. The other thing you have to remember now is Knox. Also, Gary, for if anybody's listening to this, and they should never, never listen to this podcast uh, for advice on any subject, practical. In fact, your cars, your mental, your health, your nothing. We we are not in the business of giving us. But there's a difference now between importing a car from the north and importing a car from the UK across the Irish Sea, because we're in the same duty area as the north, so there's no duty. So, cause, but if you get a car from the UK now, it's different. It's not just VRT; it's customs uh, duty as well. And, but Knox, you have to remember the Knox. Because the Knox can be lethal. Yeah, and the Knox is... I think it's... The Knox is on top of the existing VRT, but is considered part of the VRT? It may be considered part of it, but it's it's on top of. You have to consider it separately. If it's a new modern car with lots of lovely catalytic converters and things like that, you're probably not too bad. It's a couple of quid. But if it's an older car... The max you can pay on a Knox... Is if, if it's diesel, it's like five grand. Petrol is way, way lower, as are hybrid cars. But you're talking about potentially staggering sums of money on top of the base price of a car. I have heard, and again, I, I don't know if this is true, but I have heard that the reason why cars in Ireland are so basic compared to what you would get in other countries is that in order to make them price competitive at all, you need to just start shredding extras. 
it's also funny again this is not to be taken as advice if for example you were somebody from the north of ireland or probably this would work if you were from the uk as well but you were resident in the republic it makes a lot of sense for you to buy your car here and then re-import it for the purposes of residency in the north or whatever and you say but why is this how is this possible like cars are so very very expensive now this used to be the case i know it may have changed but when i was in college which was a very long time ago even then the price of cars there was a big differential between the north and the south but because the differential was so great the wholesale price of the cars used to come into ireland from the manufacturer was less to the dealer than it would be to the dealer in the uk because they had to lower the, the the base price in order to give them the margin because the cost was so substantial after the government had intervened but that meant that if when you were going back when you when you exported the car uh, or you you got your you got your tax back you you, you left the country you, you could you could claim you could claim the vat the duty whatever it was back and you would say you could you could save quite substantially uh, amount of money on that so that's worth investigating do you know what the registration fee for a car michael is in the uk because there is there is a vehicle registration charge over there as well 500 quid 55 pound 55 that's less than here gary 55 pound is probably substantially less than 37 percent of the car's price i'd have to see the exact car you were buying michael but i suspect it is substantial substantially cheaper i would say substantially cheaper sounds about right well you think about it when you're buying a car if you're buying a second-hand car you think about it because one of the things you notice is you're looking at all the various lovely cars and you have your budget and then you see for example a 2012 volkswagen golf for three and a half thousand wow and it's only got sixty thousand miles on it and it looks in great nick that's really great value now, sadly, Gary, in life, you always know if something is too cheap, it's too cheap for a reason. And what you haven't noticed is the red, the yellow reg. And just as an just as a point to anybody out there who is in the process, always remember check where the where the thing is registered because it's not registered here. If it's that means that somebody's brought in from the north and they haven't transferred, they haven't registered themselves, they and they're trying to get it off their hands quickly, and you are going to end up paying a hell of a lot more. And it's a heartbreak because you think you've found this fantastic bargain. I mean, I think the problem is that people do this on the basis that in, 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 innocent naive people will just buy the car and not know. Oh, I have to register it now. Oh, well, and I think a lot of people genuinely think that it's a bit like you, know, you pay 55 quid down the, the registry office down the county council. Not that they're going to come at you with large bags and ask you to fill it up with money, which is what they effectively do when you're buying your car so it is worth uh it's worth bearing in mind it's just but gary in fair it's not that they want to screw the uh the consumer that's a happy byproduct they just want the money they want your money they want your moolah now screwing the consumer with neither condom nor lubrication is always a pleasant prospect for the irish uh, revenue gatherer but fundamentally that's what they really the first and most important thing is they want your money. Or just on the point about the British and their registration charge, there could be VAT or duty on top of that, depending from where the car is out. And The British do it in an odd way that you can qualify for reliefs. And if you're moving to the UK, then you don't have to pay VAT or duty if you qualify for those reliefs. But a lot of the time you'll be able to get out of it anyway. But no, that is that is the uh, that is VRT. It's uh, an outrageous tax which should have never existed, and I would say is pretty clearly in breach of European laws. But there have been cases with that and questions about it, and the Irish government isn't going to do anything about it anyway. Okay, you know you, you question the morality of it, but you could frankly, Gary, question the morality of virtually any tax. It's just a question of creativity that government looks around you know, for. What can we plausibly get some money out of? And the thing is, once you do it once, it, it seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And in fact, we have now got to the point, the way we understand governance and taxation and redistribution, that the government can tax pretty well whatever the hell it likes and it's reasonable. My personal favourite is uh, 
You know the canopies that you might have in the front of a shop or a bar that come out to give shade, say if you're sitting on the pavement outside? Well, in Italy, you're taxed on the canopy. If there's a canopy tax. But Gary, this is the detail which I find really rather special. You're not taxed on the area of the canopy, the material, the fabric. You are taxed on the size of the shadow that it casts. The maximum extent of shadow cast by the canopy is the basis for the assessment of the tax. So the Italian tax man is taxing shadows. It's a very Italian approach. I think they, they probably tax dead people. But And if they get half the dead people to pay the tax, they consider it a success. So that's severity. That That is something to remember. And one of the major... Uh, Major causes of high prices of cars in Ireland. Onto the um, onto the thing I mentioned about an anti-Semitic joke, Michael. Yes. Your your favorite topic. This is about the the director of the opening ceremony of the Tokyo Olympics has been fired for a joke he told. The joke is not great. Maybe it's better in the original Japanese, but the translated version doesn't really land. It's arguably about the Holocaust arguably about himself. Kind of hard to tell exactly. That's not really important here. It's also not an argument you ever want to get into. You know, we're, we're, we're giving people a piece of advice about politics and how to do politics the other day. Never leave people in a situation where they're trying to decide do they make a joke about the Holocaust or about themselves. Just don't do it. It doesn't matter how funny the joke is. The thing that I actually just wanted to bring up in relation to it is that is the way it was reported. Yes. So some places have reported it as a Holocaust joke. Some have reported it as an offensive joke. Nearly everyone is doing the thing you see newspapers do where they don't tell you the joke. Yes. They tell you it was terrible. But what I thought was particularly interesting is both the Irish Times and the Irish Independent said it was an anti-Semitic joke. Yeah. Do you think that anti-Semitism relies... On what's in the heart of the man? Well, I mean, if he said it with hate in his heart, Michael, I think that would be a clear indication. Well, yes, Reggie, it would be. But what's your criterion for deciding whether or not a joke is anti-Semitic? Well, anti-Semitic is a question of intent and also, to a degree, target. So what the actual what the actual joke was, that was they were doing this, it was two guys, they were doing a sketch, and they were just talking about things they could do. And one of them brought up, they had some like, crumpled paper dolls, and they said uh, something like that reminded them of the time they'd played Let's Exterminate the Jews. And can you remember how angry our producer was about that? And that was it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I can see that. I mean, whether you could, you could wonder whether on the fa- it is anti-Semitic on the face of it. I think what the Times, fairly obviously, and the Independent are doing is just that kind of a lazy thing. It's a joke which references the Holocaust. And anything which references the Holocaust must be performed. If it's a joke and it's not about Nazis, any joke really must be perforce anti-Semitic. Also, they said jo- the Irish Times said jokes. Yeah, there was, as far as I've seen, there wasn't multiple jokes. There was one joke, mm-hmm. and it's not a big thing. It's not really a hill to die on. No. But the point I wanted to make was they don't know if this is anti-Semitic. And also, there weren't multiple jokes that we know of. Mm-hmm. Those are basic factual points. You can say it was a joke about the Holocaust. It's arguably correct. You can say it's an offensive joke. It's arguably correct. But you cannot definitively say it's an anti-Semitic joke. And then to say jokes is simply appears to be simply factually incorrect. Mm-hmm. They're the sort of small details which are important. Because remember, this is someone who actually exists they're reporting on. So yes. the line between an offensive joke and a joke which is deliberately engaged to be anti-Semitic is quite important to the people who are having it reported on. And you see this a lot with comedians, where a comedian will say things about something or other, and it's taken poorly, and it is reported as if the intent of that joke was to put forward some sort of bigotry or xenophobia or something of that degree, or hatred in some form. Yeah. I, for anybody who has never seen Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, it's a show where Jerry Seinfeld talks to comedians. And one of the constant themes, obviously, when you have comedians talking to each other, is the nature of comedy. And what? And again and again, a diff, different comedians, but, and, and big, big series, fuck off names like, like Eddie Murphy, like Seinfeld himself, express their fr- in frustration with, with this... Offence seeking with this, it's a comedy club. I'm a comedian. 
don't you get it? It's a joke. Now, it's a it's a it's a, a live debate in the culture we live in, Gary, on whether or not you're allowed to joke about everything, or indeed how many things you're not allowed to joke about, and the context, uh, etc. So, but there is this. It's like a a weirdly literal child reporting on an adult conversation, and they report on what was plainly and obviously a joke made for effect. And one would imagine, obviously, not the actual opinions, political or otherwise, of the comedian regarding an ethnicity or a population or a situation. But it's reported in this as if it was just simply that opinion and not a bloody joke. And Gary, they, well, surely they can't be so stupid as not to know the difference. I don't know. The Independent, by the way, also said the same thing. They said there were multiple jokes that had been seen in multiple clips, mm-hmm. none of which is, is is correct from what I've seen. And that is a difference. That is presenting a single joke as part of a pattern of jokes, which were all anti-Semitic, as opposed to a single joke from 25 years ago, which referred to the Holocaust, but arguably isn't even about the Holocaust. No, I, I would have thought it was more a character joke. It was a joke about the person or the people involved and kind of their their. I would say their tone deafness, in a sense, that the the joke was they didn't quite understand why the producer was getting so mad. If I was going to do a comedian and analyzing the joke, the joke that's the joke. Why was the why was the the producer got really angry? What was that about? It's a slightly it's a kind of joke you could kind of imagine Ricky Gervais making today. I mean, arguably, it's a joke about themselves being unable to tell what is appropriate. Yes. Now it's it's difficult to tell exactly what's happening here because, as I said, this was in Japanese, which I don't speak. Can you clarify for me because I'm not really following this? This is a this is something which happened 25 years ago. Right, I think it was 1996. And this was a what? A comedy sketch? Um, he was part of a comedy sketch duo. And um, yeah, it was just a skit that they had done on it where they were pretending to be two people, two comedians working for a TV program, trying to come up with an idea for the next show. And it was, you know, a couple of lines in that. No, it's dark, I would say. It's a pretty dark joke. But I can, to me, the joke is two people who don't understand who are in some way, the joke is these two people are in, in are, are fundamentally social, are, lack certain social skills, shall we say, or uh, are some way impaired because they don't understand what is, as you say, what, what is to be considered appropriate or inappropriate and are excited, baffled by the reaction of the, of the producer. The joke is, is about them. Now, if you reference the Holocaust, it makes, it's, the context is a bit dark, but the I can absolutely, yeah, again, I'm thinking specifically Ricky Gervais, but I'm sure they're all comedians. That's the kind of joke that Gervais would do, or somebody like Gervais would do. Um, and that was, I'd also observe it was 25 years ago. And this is not a joke, Gary. 25 years after the actual Holocaust, the, the Germans had long stopped looking for lots of people who were involved in the actual Holocaust, because they said, well, it's 25 years ago. Yeah, as I said, it's difficult to tell because jokes generally don't translate well, culturally or linguistically. Anyway, the Tokyo Olympics has been an absolute shit show for people at resigning. Some of them have resigned for reasons you look at and go, that seems a bit ridiculous to resign for. And uh, one of them in particular resigned for things where they dug up interviews, old interviews, where he admitted um, bullying a classmate of his who had learning difficulties. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and then said that he had locked him in a box and forced him to eat his own excrement. And he had said that in repeated interviews. And not as a joke. No. Uh, so there was a little bit of, okay, go away now. Why would you tell people you'd done that? I don't know. Maybe it was a joke. And it was just repeatedly delivered. And maybe the Japanese have a different sense of humour to us. I imagine they do. I've seen some Japanese theatre. And I didn't get any laughs. God, that's rotten. He was one of the composers for the opening ceremony of the Tokyo Tokyo Olympics, and he had to resign, like, last week. Did you say composer? Yeah. He's composing music. You know, I I think we're going to start employing musical composers on the basis of their moral qualities. We may end up with rather worse music than we we would like. Yeah, what he he had said was that um, he forced a mentally disabled boy to eat his own feces 
and masturbate in front of other students in what was described as a boastful fashion. Well, I'm not saying he doesn't obviously he sounds like an absolute charmer. He's the kind of person that you'd have down uh, first on your list for dinner on Saturday night. I don't dispute that. But, you know, if you go through the moral capabilities of the people who have made music and made music well over the last 300 years or so, hmm. Yeah, I think the problem for him was the whole... He told people. The problem was, Gary, he told people. The, the, the action was done and dusted. And the Paralympic Games. Oh, God. Oh, Oh, it's just a... Why would you tell some... This is the joke, Gary. This is the same guy who's in the joke. You're talking about somebody who doesn't know what's appropriate and inappropriate. Try and... This is the guy who do... needs us to tell him what not to say. But, oh, my God. Why would you tell somebody you've done that? Unless, actually, this was a secret. This was actually a manifestation uh, of a, a deep desire to be actually caught and punished that this was his guilt working out saying catch me punish me for this terrible thing that i did that i have got away with but you know what let's leave freud for sundays because i always feel it's it's a better thing and it's it's too hot to get into you know those long conversations about japanese excrement eating so just to to close up on then a a brief note about the uh, the Nord Stream project. Now, the Nord Stream 2, technically, I suppose. Yeah, so we're back on more comedy. Yeah, so the Nord Stream is a, a pipeline running from Russia to Germany. It's been ongoing for God knows how long at this point. It is right off the coast of Germany now. They're in the final stretch. Politically, it's been a shambles from start to finish. The EU doesn't like it because... Well, the you know Russians and energy. Sometimes Russia has been willing to use energy as a uh, weapon. Michael, I'd shock you to hear. Like Ukraine has had some terribly sudden uh, losses of power in particularly cold periods of the year mm-hmm. for reasons that don't really seem to add up. There you go. These things happen, Gary. Who knows why? My advice to Ukraine would be to buy two extra canisters when you're getting the cause and gas, and that way, if you run out. You don't have to go to the shops. Part of the problem with this has been the sanctions on Russia and the, uh, should we say, political difficulties involved with Russia. Mm-hmm. So the US and Germany sat down and they've worked out a, a Nord Stream 2 deal where the US won't put any blockages in the way of this deal being completed as long as Germany does some you know, investment in Ukraine and keeps a watch for the Russians trying to use the uh, new energy outlay to influence politics. And this deal was met with um, a degree of confusion in Europe. Questions like, why would the US be doing deals with Germany about Nord Stream 2 at all? Yeah, what, is that, what has it got to do with the United States? What authority does it do to, to have to implement these things? The Germans, by the way, Gary. We're always finishing this. They need this so bad. They're like, you know, the junkies used to get around. I don't know, you still do. You used to get them around Connolly Station. They'd be begging. I need me medicine, sir. I need me medicine. The Germans need their medicine, Gary. They need their gas because they're now producing lignite from uh, open gas mines in the north of Germany, which you can actually see from space because... They're having spent tens of billions for years and years and years. And they're still back where they're not much different to where they started from when it comes to the use of renewables. And because, they, of course, you can't use nuclear. Because there was, a, there, was a, there was a tsunami in Japan, Gary, which was obviously caused by nuclear power or something like that. I can't remember the details. But we can't use nuclear power because of it. So where are you going to go then? Yeah, the, um, the interesting thing here is that the European Commission opposes the deal. Yes. But it doesn't technically break any laws. No. So they've basically just been looking at it disapprovingly. Yeah, much like a, an aunt looking at a young lady going out to the dance with a skirt that's a little bit too short. With that young man that they don't really like. And the thing about the Commission is they don't really like that young man, Mr. Putin. One of the, one of the concerns here is that gas currently comes through Ukraine. And Ukraine makes money on that. 
Yes. They, they get gas transit fees. The new pipeline would cut Ukraine totally out of it mm-hmm. and be a direct link between Russia and Germany. Yes. So the Ukrainians are deeply unhappy with this and they're trying to create problems for it. The problem here is that there's nothing legally stopping Germany from doing this. At any point it can complete the project. There's all of these other issues like sanctions and what will happen with Russia when the pipeline is completed and are we going to start running into problems but they're technically not related to the construction of this pipeline. The next business will be when they're starting to bring the pipeline to Ireland because we're going to need gas too Gary and as you know we have made it illegal to go and look for gas in Irish waters. We have already decided that even if we found gas and we have found gas on Irish land we don't do fracking fracking is bad and wicked even if there is enough gas in the le- in the whole in Leitrim to power the whole country so we're going to have to get gas from somewhere Gary and uh, we can get it from Mr Putin of course we could go we could do what the Italians do Gary and get it from Libya in order to source it from a more stable and moderate political context the EU does have some concerns that when it's completed the Germans will sign off on something that is not in shall we say strict compliance with European energy or gas rules. Is that their concern, Gary? Well, that's that's terrible. I'm, I'm, I, I'm just so shocked. This is the European Union which is so concerned about climate and energy use that it can't do enough to get up the arse of the, of the Chinese regime, which is not just engaged in genocide against the Uyghur people, but is also building coal-powered power stations with the speed that most people have ham sandwiches. And yet nothing, Gary. When was the last time you heard people express large-scale official-level concern to the Chinese about their construction of coal-fired power stations, along with their concerns about the genocide against the Uyghur people, their threats against Taiwan, and their destruction of democracy in Hong Kong? You're looking up are you to try to tell me the various number of times in the last month that the EU has issued official statements on this, is it? Dozens of times, Gary, is it? No. I, I would doubt that. There are certain groups within the EU, uh, and the European Parliament particularly, that do release moderately regular updates on China. There are groups in the EU Parliament, Gary, that release nothing else either but methane. Did you see our own dear Mick Wallace speaking on this subject recently? Uh, I did. Well, I'm sorry. I know, I know. I, he's from Wexford. And don't don't think we're not aware of that. Don't think that the shame is not something we live with. But I would recommend for anybody who wants to know, go and look it up on YouTube. We won't talk about it here, but it's, it is worth seeing just for the comedy. But Gary, all of this concern has got to... So what? I'm just curious why the Americans decided to get involved in this at all. What's the story here? The Americans are worried about Russia's ability to project power through this. And they're also worried about what happens with Ukraine. So it was perfectly within America's right to sanction everyone involved in this pipeline, down to the individual ships involved in building it. So it makes sense for the Germans to try and get them on board to make sure that doesn't happen. But they were doing that, weren't they? They were actually, you mentioned that because that's what they were. It was ships that right down to individual ships were sanctioned. At the end of the day, the only two players who can actually stop this thing being built are Russia and Germany. Everyone else can raise all the objections they want. They can point out the issues. They can try and have extended negotiations. But those things are all technically tertiary matters. This is, does Germany want it? Does Russia want it? No one else can stop that. They want this thing built. And so are they gonna they're gonna get let it get to the very last hurdle and then go, okay, we've got close enough. No, this thing is going through. It is a, a point that you have made many, many times that the the single most important sine qua non of the developed economy is energy. Large, abundant amounts of relatively cheap energy, without the which we cannot function. So we are going to get increasingly, as we choose to nail our feet to the floor, or if you want a different metaphor, to consistently shoot ourselves in the foot and reduce our capacity and our choices regarding energy uh, production. 
we're going to find ourselves involved in debate disputes like this where people are going to have to do things which they don't morally maybe like particularly or other people don't morally like but you got to get the juice Gary you got to get the juice the Russians have the juice the Germans have no juice the juice they have is very smoky juice so they're going to get the juice and they don't care first you get the gas <laughs> first you get the gas then you get the power then you get the women <laughs> <laughs> and on that uplifting note, I think we will be back on Sunday. We will, please God. Bye-bye. All the best. <laughs> <laughs>